I'd like you to take a Bible this morning, and rather than the Gospel of John, I'd like you to find Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. We're going to take a two-month break from the Gospel of John. We'll pick up right where we left off. We'll pick up with John 11 in March. This morning, we're going to begin a nine-week study of the character of God. It's going to take us through the first couple of months here of a new year, and I thought this would be a good topic to think about at the beginning of a new year, just to remind ourselves who God is and what He's like. We're going to talk about some of His attributes and some of His characteristics. This is a roadmap of where we're headed. This morning, we're going to talk about holiness. In the weeks to come, we'll talk about self-existence, sovereignty, goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and love. Each week, I want to begin with a quote. We're going to end up in the scriptures, but each week, I want to begin with a quote that just sort of gets your mind thinking in the right direction. The quote this morning comes from an author named A.W. Pink. He was also a pastor, but that never went well for him. He pastored a couple of churches, and uh, things never went well at the churches he pastored, but he's remembered today as an author and a theologian. He said, the foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of his perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture, an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. And I like this quote for a couple of reasons. I like it because Pink reminds us the things that we think about God have to be rooted in Scripture. We are not free to just sort of dream up our own ideas of what we would like God uh, to be like, who we would like Him to be. It's got to be rooted in Scripture. And the things that we learn about God are not just academic, factual pieces of information that we store away in our brain. Maybe you've seen there's a, there's a Jeopardy contest coming up with the three greatest Jeopardy champions. They're all going to be on the same show, and they're going to see who's the greatest. The things that we talk about are not just Bible Jeopardy facts that you're storing away in your brain. If you ever went to Sunday school as a child and you came in and your teacher said, we're playing Bible Jeopardy, you know that meant I didn't study a lesson. So I'm just going to pull some questions out and ask you some questions here. And hopefully you got some facts. And if you got enough facts, you could win Bible Jeopardy. That's not the end game for us. The end game is not just factual knowledge. The end game is we want to be people who trust God. We want to be people who serve God. We want to be people who worship God. And if that's going to happen, we've got to know who he is and what he's like. And so this morning we're going to talk about holiness. We're going to start with a definition of holiness. And I just want to begin by saying this. Holiness is the most difficult attribute of God to define. You read some theologians and they they make a run at describing holiness. And then some of them end up saying something like this. Holiness is something you have to feel in your gut as much as you have to know with your brain. There's a little bit of truth to that. When you talk about God's holiness, it should impact you on an emotional level, on a, on a visceral level. But we don't want to just sort of give ourselves over to emotion and feeling. We want to actually listen to the scripture and think about what holiness means. And so I'm going to try to define holiness for you with three words. There's several others I wanted to put on the list, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you three words to sort of begin to wrap your mind around what it means that God is holy. The first word is this, otherness. 
I don't know if that's a proper word, but it suits my purposes this morning. When we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about his otherness. He is set apart from us. He is transcendent above us. It's not just that he's above us, but it's that in a sense he's beyond us. He's not like us. We're talking about God's otherness. He's in, you could say, a category all by himself. Right? He's in a category of one. No one else is in that category with him. We talk about people this way at times. Today's the last day of the NFL football season. The Cowboys are going to break our hearts uh, as if they hadn't broken them enough last week, and so I'm not going to talk about the Cowboys. Let me talk about a, a football player named Lamar Jackson. He's a quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. He's done something this year that no one has ever done before in the entire history of the NFL He has thrown for 30 passing touchdowns, and he has ran for 1,000 yards. No one has done that. I'm not telling you that other people are sort of up there with him, and he's just done the best. He's actually done something that no one has ever done. And so the sports commentators have been talking about this guy the last few weeks, and they've been saying things like this. Lamar Jackson is in a league of his own. Lamar Jackson is breathing rare air. Right? Lamar Jackson is in, a, in, in a, a, a pinnacle of his profession that no one has ever reached before. And what they're trying to say is, he's the only guy on this list. No one else has ever done it. That is the faintest, just a tiny glimmer of what we're talking about when we talk about God's holiness. What we're saying is, he alone is breathing that rare air. He alone is in a league all by himself. He alone is set apart and is unique. There is no one else like him. In fact, you could say there are only two categories of things in the entire cosmos. There are uncreated things that would be God and only God. And there are created things, everything else that exists, and he made it. There is the creator... And then there are creatures. There is the Holy One who's in a category all by himself. And then there's everything else that exists that derives its existence from him. Look at these scriptures. Thinking about God being other. Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer to that question is, no one is like you. No one. There's no one to compare you to. I could look around at all the other gods of all the other peoples. You don't compare to any of them, and they don't compare to you because they're not like you. You're not like them. You're other. Look at this next scripture, Isaiah 40. God says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. This is God speaking, and he says, who are you going to put on the other side of the scale? There's no one that compares to me, right? There's no, there's no one that is remotely close to being my equal that you could even make a comparison. One more scripture, 
Revelation 15, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You're it. There is no one who compares to you. So we're talking about God's holiness. One of the things we're saying is that he is other. He's different. He's set apart. Second word, purity. Purity. Holiness has the idea of purity wrapped up in it. God is without sin. He's without blemish. He is the sum of everything that is morally excellent. Anything that is good and moral and right and true, it finds its origin in him. He's the sum total of all of those things. He's pure. 1 John 1.5, the apostle says it like this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is absolutely no moral blemish in God. He's holy. It means he's other and it means he's pure. Third word is wholeness. Wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness. He's complete. He lacks nothing. There's nothing that he could learn or discover. There's nothing that we could give him. There's nothing that could be added to him that would make him better or wiser or more glorious. He is completely complete. How many of you have ever taken a personality profile? Maybe you had to do this at work or maybe you got on the internet and did some sort of rinky-dink version online or maybe you did one in college. Uh, There's all sorts of profiles available. There's a DISC thing and there's a Myers-Briggs and there's an Enneagram is popular and there's all sorts of things. If you've taken one of these profiles, a good profile does a couple of things. A good profile sort of looks at your answers to a number of questions and says, okay, this is the kind of person you are, right? Here's a category that we're going to put you in. We're going to put some people in this category and some people in that category, but here's your category. And a good personality profile will look at your category and say, here's some things you're good at. Here's some things you probably excel at. And you read through that list and you get a big head and you think, oh, that's me. Look at me. That is so great. But a good personality profile doesn't stop there. It also goes on to say, here's some things you're not so good at. In fact, here's some areas where you're probably weak or areas where you need to grow or areas where you're not naturally gifted. And a good profile sort of does all of those things. It gives you a category. Here's where we put you into this group and here's some of the things you're good at and Here's some of the things you're not good at. Those sorts of tools can be helpful for humans. You understand they're not helpful for God. On the one hand, there is no category in which to put him except his own category. He doesn't fit into any category. He's his own category. And he doesn't have any weaknesses. If you come to that part of the profile on God, you say, okay, here's the strengths. Where are the weaknesses? There are none. And I don't mean there's none like when you go on a job interview and they say, tell us your greatest strengths, and then they say, tell us your greatest weakness, and you very confidently say, I don't have any weaknesses. And we all know you're lying. I mean, there's no weaknesses. 
He's whole. He's complete. He's not missing anything that would make him better or greater or more glorious. He's other. He's pure. He's whole. One way you can think about it is, is as I put it on your notes, holiness is God's chief attribute. As such, it governs all of his other attributes and actions. It's his chief attribute, and it governs all his other attributes and actions. We're going to look at the scriptures together. We're going to look at Isaiah 6. We're going to walk through that passage. We're going to look at Revelation 4, and we're going to walk through that passage. These two passages have something in common. Here's your vocabulary word for the day. Are you ready for this? Trisagion. How was church today? It was fantastic. We talked about the trisagion. That's just a mashup of two Greek words. You recognize tri from your tricycle. Tri means three. The Greek word for holy is hagios. So we're saying God is three times holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And you find that in Isaiah 6, once in the Old Testament. You find it once in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Nowhere else in the Bible do you find an attribute of God raised to this degree. The Bible says that God is love. We're going to talk about that. It not one time says that God is love, love, love. The Bible says that God is wrathful towards sin. It's one of his attributes, so we're going to talk about it. But not one time does it say he's wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. It doesn't say that he's just, just, just doesn't say that he's faithful, faithful, faithful. It says twice, once in the old and once in the new, that he's holy, holy, holy. It's his chief attribute. It governs all of his other attributes. Look at Isaiah 6. Just read the text with me. You follow along. Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking about himself, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Several things I just want to point out to you as you think about those verses. Isaiah says the whole thing, the whole vision took place in the year that King Uzziah died. You can read about Uzziah in the Old Testament. He was a good king. He was a good king. But he was a king who crossed a boundary that God had set in his life, and he did it intentionally. God said, you're the king. You're not the priest. And Uzziah said, I'd be happy to be the king, but I'd also like to be the priest. And he walked across that line and he went to the temple and he tried to take the job of the priest for himself. And the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he had leprosy till the day he died. The life of Uzziah is not an incidental detail here. The life of Uzziah is a reminder that when it comes to the holy God, 
good is not good enough. The holy God demands holiness. You see that in Isaiah's life, Uzziah's life. And Isaiah says the whole thing happened in the year that he died. And he says, I saw something. I saw the Lord. And he was sitting on a throne and he was high and lifted up. That's otherness language. Right? He was transcendent. He was above me. He was beyond me. He's on this throne and the train of his robe, his clothing, just his clothing, filled the temple. And then he sees the seraphim. And the seraphim are covering their eyes and they're covering their feet and they're flying and they're calling out to each other. They're crying out to each other. And here's the trisagion. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And notice in verse 3, the Lord of hosts. Lord is all caps. That means Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh, the Lord, the commander, the general of all the armies of heaven. That's what hosts means. He's in charge of all of them. He's above all of them. The sovereign one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. And if you've never read it before, you've read it. But if you've never read it before and I asked you to fill in the blank, you would probably say, well, he's holy, holy, holy. So that means the whole earth is full of his holiness. But that's not what they say. He's holy, holy, holy. And the entire earth is filled with his glory. And those two words are connected. When God's holiness goes on display for the world to see it, he gets glory. And God is glorified when people recognize his holiness. Those two words are tightly, tightly connected. The foundations are shaking at the voice of him who called. Not even at the voice of the Lord, but at the voice of the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. They are making the threshold shake. Creatures who can make the foundations of the temple shake, are acknowledging that God, the Lord of hosts, is holy, holy, holy. The entire thing is filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me. Literally what he said is, I'm a dead man. I'm dead. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I've seen him. High and lifted up on the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim calling out, he's holy, holy, holy. And he sees himself at the same time. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Things that come out of my mouth are not right. They start in my heart. They come out of my mouth. It's proof. I'm a sinner. This is an important thing. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Revelation. Sinful people cannot enjoy the presence of the holy God. It's not possible. Sinful people, left to themselves, cannot, do not, will not enjoy the presence of a holy God. And he just cries out and he says, I'm lost. I'm dead. Woe is me. Before anything can continue in the book of Isaiah, you can read this in verse 6 and 7. The Lord has to come and make atonement for Isaiah's sin. He has to take his guilt and remove it so that he's, he's right, he's pure, he's fit to stand before the Lord. And you hear these seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now we turn to Revelation 4. Take your Bible and look at the last book 
all the way to the right. If you go to the maps, go back to the left. Revelation 4. The book of Revelation is written by John. He's worshiping on the Lord's day, and he has a vision. And your mind perks up at that, and you say, ah, Isaiah had a vision. John had a vision. John has a vision of a throne. You say, oh, Isaiah, he had a vision of a throne. John saw somebody in his vision. You say, oh, Isaiah saw somebody. John saw the resurrected Christ in his vision. And when he saw him, he said something very, very similar, or he did something very, very similar to what Isaiah did. You see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He saw Jesus... And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's exactly what Isaiah did. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a dead man. And John said, I can relate. I saw Jesus resurrected in all his glory, and I just fell down at his feet like a dead man. Why? It's because John knew John. He knew he was a sinner, and he saw a, a glimpse of Jesus and all his glory and all his holiness, and he said the result is death. What else could it be? I just fell down at his feet as though dead. And it's so beautiful in Revelation 1. Jesus reaches down, he puts his right hand on John, and he says, fear not. John had every reason to be afraid. Jesus said, fear not. And he didn't follow that up with, you're not that bad of a guy, John. And he didn't follow it up with, I'm not that big of a deal, it's just little old me. He follows it up and he says, John, you don't have to be afraid. I'm the living one and I died. And I'm alive. I died for you. I made atonement for you. I took your guilt and I took the punishment for it. And now you don't have to be afraid. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, I'm holy. You don't have to be afraid, John. Get up. And Jesus asked John to write some letters. He writes some letters to some churches, and then he gives him this vision of a throne. Look at Revelation chapter 4. We'll just read part of the vision. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 8. There was four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. There's that word again. When God's holiness goes on display, the result is God gets glory. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. There's your two categories, created things and the creator. You're the creator. You're the holy one. You're in this category all by yourself. Everything else is just something that you created. By your will, they existed and they were created. And you note the parallels. They're obvious. And Isaiah, the seraphim, are flying, but they're covering their feet and they're covering their eyes out of reverence. It's not because the seraphim are sinful. It's because they're creatures. 
and they're humble and they're, they're reverent in the presence of the Holy One. And in John's vision, the elders and the living creatures, they're falling down on their face in reverence and in worship. Holiness is the thing, you could say, that makes God God. It's his chief attribute. Throughout the Bible, he is described in a number of ways, none more frequently than holy. Twice, holy, 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 but dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of times, he's holy. He's the holy one. He's holy. Over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and then the temple, the most important part of those buildings was where God met with his people. And what did they call it? They called it the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, because God was there. When God sends his spirit to live among us, he calls him the holy spirit. That's who he is. That's the essence of who he is as God. It's what makes him God. The psalmist says it this way. Psalm 97, 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. God's name is his character. It's who he is at the deepest level. And the psalmist says this over and over throughout the psalms. He's holy. His name, his character, his person, his being is holy. It's his chief attribute. It governs all of his other attributes. In a sense, you could say God's mercy is a holy mercy. You could say his wrath is a holy wrath. You could say his love and his grace is a holy love and a holy grace. You could say his justice and his faithfulness. It's a holy faithfulness and a holy justice. It's his chief attribute. It governs everything about him. Everything about God is marked by holiness, and God's holiness is supposed to change everything about us. And we'll end with this question, how should we live in light of God's holiness? I just want to give you a few suggestions. Number one, we should be humble. This doctrine, this truth, this attribute of God should make us humble. It should make us humble because we're sinful people. Right? Like Isaiah, we should cry out and say, woe is me, we are people of unclean lips. And that begins in our hearts. Our hearts are unclean. We're a mess. But beyond our sin, this humility is rooted in our creatureliness. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 have no sin to confess before God, and yet they still show humility in the in the presence of the Holy One. These elders and these creatures in heaven, in the vision of Revelation 4, they have no sin to confess to God, and yet they still tremble and fall on their face in the presence of the Holy One. God's holiness should make us humble. Secondly, we should be teachable. Teachable. On your notes, I put Isaiah 50, verse 21. That's my typo. It should be Psalm 50, verse 21, and I'll put the verse on the screen. The psalmist says this, these things you have done, and in the psalm, God has laid out the sin of his people. He's just listed it out like a laundry list. These are the things you've done. He lays it all out, and he says, you've done this, and I've been silent, and you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. 
I didn't take immediate action on your sin, God says, although it's apparent what you've done. And he says, when I didn't take action, you made the mistake of thinking I was like you. What he's saying to his people is, I'm not like you. I'm in a category all by myself. I'm set apart in my holiness. And he's warning his people, do not make the mistake of thinking that I'm just like you. Listen, these people that the psalmist is talking about, these people who thought God was like them, they're the kind of people who walk around and they say things like, you know, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not like you. I'm categorically different. You don't have the liberty of filling in that blank. These are the people who walk around and say things like, I would never believe in a God who fill in the blank. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not like you. You don't get the option of accepting or rejecting things that I reveal about myself. You're the creature, and I'm the creator. I'm in a category all by myself. When you reckon with this idea of holiness and you start to feel it deep in your bones, it should make you teachable. It should stop you from taking your ideas about God and imposing them on the Bible. It should stop you from thinking my small, puny, tiny, creaturely brain that can't even function in the morning until I have four cups of coffee can figure out the creator of the universe. Hit the pause button. That's not how it works. You need to be humble. You need to be teachable. Number three, you need to trust in Jesus. You and I have a problem. It's the same problem Isaiah had, is that we're sinful people. And the proof is in our lips. There's no denying it. Sin is a big problem. It's a problem that we cannot solve on our own. It's a problem Isaiah couldn't solve on his own. It's a problem John could not solve on his own. And it's a problem you and I cannot solve on our own. I can't fix your sin problem. A priest can't fix your sin problem. Singing worship songs won't fix your sin problem. Only Jesus can fix your sin problem. What you need is a mediator. You need a go-between who will stand between you and the holy God. And in Jesus, we have exactly that. Look what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, there is one God. That's holiness. That's holiness. There's one God. He's in a category all by himself. In the God category, there's one. And you're not there and I'm not there. He's holy. And he says there's a mediator. There's one mediator. Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You need a mediator who will bridge this divide between creator and creature. Jesus does that in the the incarnation. God becomes man. And you need a mediator who will take your sin and make atonement. Jesus does that. The sinless son of God takes your sin upon himself on the cross and pays the penalty for your sin so that... Although you're sinful like Isaiah and John and me, you can enjoy the presence of the holy God because your sin has been taken away and you've been given the righteousness of the mediator. Left to ourselves, we never enjoy the presence of a holy God. Through a mediator, you can enjoy it 
and you can know him. So we trust in Jesus. Number four, we worship. We worship. Psalm 30, verse 4. You could pick a number of psalms out. We'll put Psalm 30, verse 4 up. It says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. We've got to be people who worship. And I'm well aware that worship is bigger than what we do in this room. Worship is something we do with the entirety of our lives. I understand that. But I also understand that worship is not smaller than what we do in this room. And it most certainly includes the songs that we sing in this room. And for thousands of years, God's people have been singing people. That's true all throughout church history. Christians have been singing people. It's true all the way through the Old Testament. Go back and look what Moses did as soon as they walked out of Egypt. He wrote a song. And he said, I'm going to teach you guys this song. We're going to sing it together. God's people have always been singing people. And when we gather together, we sing praises to him. We give thanks to him. We worship him through song. God created people to express their deepest emotions through music. It's something that is just part of what it means to be human. And we use that gift to worship God. One more thing I want you to notice in this verse. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Literally, what it says is, sing praises to the Lord, O you His holy ones. His holy ones. And that's the last thing I want you to see. We should be holy. Because God is holy, we should be holy. Now, if we're honest, when we use the word saint, we think about the football team in New Orleans. Or maybe you think, hey, So-and-so did me a favor. They are, oh, you are a saint. Or maybe you have a Catholic background and you think, oh, those are the people who have performed a miracle and it's been verified by the church and they've had a a vote and a conclave and they've decided that this person was good enough and, and holy enough that they get to be recognized, they get to be canonized as a saint. But listen, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, saints are sinful People, what a strange name to use for sinful people. To call sinful people holy ones. They're not called saints or holy ones because they're really, really good or they play for a certain football team. They're called saints, they're called holy ones because that's what God has made them through Christ. They're sinful people who have trusted in Christ. Their sins have been forgiven and they have been set apart and Peter says it like this, 1 Peter chapter 1, 15, 16. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You should be holy, because that's who I am. If you're a saint, it doesn't mean you're a really great person means you're a sinner who has trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And if you're a person who has trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, that means God has reached down into the mess of your heart and he has changed your heart. He's given you a new heart. And the things that you used to want and the things that you used to desire are not the things that you used to want and the things that you used to desire. He's changed you. He's made you new. You're a new 
creation. And people who have been set apart for that purpose want to be like the God who has saved them. They don't have a desire to continue in the filth of this world and then just sneak into heaven at the last moment. They have a new heart. They have a new desire. And they say, I want to be like God. And if he's holy, then that's what I want to be like. It's a remarkable truth that we're talking about this morning. It's the chief attribute of God. He's holy, holy, holy. It impacts everything that he does and everything about him. And at the same time, it ought to be the thing that marks us as his people, as his saints, something that colors and affects everything that we do and everything that we are as a church. So to that end, I want to pray for you and myself